Well, if you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 1. And we are going to look at what on the surface might be the most boring section of the entire New Testament. (laughs) Um, And that is the genealogy of Jesus. So Matthew chapter 1. And we are just going to start by just reading the whole thing, mainly just so you can make fun of me, because there are a lot of names in here that are hard to pronounce. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. If you are using your phone, um, we are using the ESV, if you want to follow along that way. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Isaiah, and Isaiah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatel, and Sheatel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the, to the Christ, 14 generations. This is God's word. Now, the reason that it's important to read passages like that, and the reason that it's important, one of them, to preach passages like that, is because we believe that all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching. And so this kind of passage is just a discipline for me personally as your pastor to test myself. Do I really believe that? Do I believe that all scripture is useful for teaching? And I think that it is. And it's actually been the most fun thing for me to be able to study this this week. And so this week, um, what we're just going to simply ask is what do we learn about Jesus from the genealogy? What, what are we supposed to take away from this? How is this supposed to make our lives different? How is this supposed to make us love God more? What can we learn from the genealogy? A genealogy is like a resume or a cover letter for the ancient world. 
So you know how if you have ever applied for a new job, you've had to get the resume ready and you've had to write this cover letter, right? And the goal of that resume and cover letter is you want this person or this team or this committee to accept you, right? You want this this group who's making a decision to look at what you've done, to look at who you are and what you've done and decide, yeah, this person is a good fit for us. This is somebody that we should hire, right? It's very simple. And so you are really selective with what you include and how you say what you include and what you exclude, right? And so um, if you've ever had a lawn mowing business, you didn't say, I mowed lawns, right? You called yourself a lawn care specialist, right? Or if you babysat as a, as a teenager, you were like, I'm a child care specialist, right? And that just meant that you watched your cousins a few times, you know? Um, but but you're, you try to phrase things in such a way that it makes you more presentable and you leave certain things off at times, right? So if you worked for one company and you didn't have a good experience there and you're not sure that that boss is going to love you, you don't even have to mention it. You're in control of the resume. You're in control of the cover letter. It's your chance to, to position yourself to... Make sure that the optics are right so that you can be accepted. And that's what the genealogy was for the ancient world. See, in the ancient Near East, um, they weren't like our culture where um, in, in the West, people pretty much determine what they think about you based on what you do and what you accomplish, right? So your identity, your name is pretty much tied to what you do. In the ancient world, it was a far more communal society than in the West today. And so because of that, the primary thing they were interested in, if they were going to get to know you, if they were going to um, think highly of you, was not so much what have you done, but who do you come from? Who do you come from? Who do you belong to? And so genealogies were very important. Genealogies were a way of putting your best foot forward, so to speak, and in fact, King Herod, who we're going to talk about in two weeks, um, he was an Edomite. He had a, a lineage that was from um, Esau, and he was very embarrassed by that. And so he went to great lengths to try to change the way that his genealogy was told so that he could have more respect in the eyes of the people in the land so that he could be the king. And so that's one example of how important a genealogy was for how somebody was interpreted, for how somebody was received, for how somebody was accepted. And so Matthew is a follower of Jesus, writing about 40 years after the life of Jesus. He was one of Jesus's closest followers. He used to be a tax collector, so he was very wealthy. He was educated. And he begins to write this account And his goal is for people to form the same conclusion about Jesus that he has. And his conclusion is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the promised one. He's the king that God said he would send to the nation of Israel. And he wants for his readers to form that conclusion. And so his strategy to start his gospel is different than the other gospel writers. His strategy is to begin with a genealogy, letting people know, where does Jesus come from? Who does Jesus belong to? And what Matthew wants us to see from this genealogy is very simple. He wants us to see this. This is the whole point of the message today. 
that Jesus is the promised, benevolent king. Jesus is the promised, benevolent king. And I'm not talking about the restaurant on Manchester, all right? Um, Even though it is great, and Gus and Rebecca took us there, and it was awesome. That's not what I'm talking about. Jesus is the promised, benevolent king. Where do we get that from? Look at verse 1. The book of genealogy, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The whole genealogy is summarized by those three statements. Jesus is the Christ, he's the son of David, and he's the son of Abraham. He's the Christ, he's the son of David, and he's the son of Abraham. Now, we've talked about this before, but the word Christ is not like Jesus' last name. (laughs) The word Christ means it's a title. Jesus is the Christ. That's why um, in in verse 16, it says, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. It's a title. And then at the end of verse 17, it says, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So the Christ is a title, and it's a title that means Messiah, anointed one. It means that this is the promised one, the one that God has promised to send to the earth. The fact that Jesus is called the Christ teaches us at least two things. First, it teaches us that the Bible has a purpose. The Bible has a purpose. It was written with a purpose. It's not a random collection of stories, a random collection of laws, a random collection of, you know, helpful tips for life. Instead, it's a unified story that points to something. It has a plot and all of the small inner workings fit together into a whole. And that's what Matthew is doing with the genealogy is he's showing how he basically walks through the entire history of the nation of Israel. That's why in verse 17, he summarizes all the nations from Abraham to David, from David to the deportation to Babylon, from the deportation to the Christ. He's summarizing Israel's whole history. What was their history? God called a nation. He formed a nation. And then he sent them a king, David. Then they disobeyed, they were exiled, they were deported to Babylon. And then after they were there, they returned from Babylon. And that's the whole story of the Old Testament. And he says that whole story was leading up to the Christ. That whole story was pointing to Jesus All of the stories played a part in getting us to Jesus, and all of these names are remembered today because of their connection, their relationship to Jesus. So this genealogy teaches us that the Bible has a purpose. It's not random. The second thing it teaches us is this, that God is personal. God is personal. Now, I don't know what your perception of God is. Maybe the way that you think about God is that he's like a disinterested dad. He really only speaks up when there's a problem. He really only gets involved when you've done something wrong. Maybe the way that you think about God is like he's this genie who basically works for you to give you the things that you want to make all of your greatest dreams and wishes come true. 
Maybe the way that you think about God is like Santa. (laughs) It's like he's this jolly grandfather type figure who just wants to do nice stuff for you all the time. But think about the fact that God is a promise maker. Think about that. What does that teach us about who God is? Well, first of all, the fact that he wants to make promises means that he's not just this transcendent being who's out there, who made the world one time and then left it on its own. Instead, the fact that he makes promises means that he wants to be trusted. He wants to have a relationship with the world. So he makes promises. That means he's personal. And the fact that he makes promises means that his goal is not simply to do what we want him to do. Instead, the fact that he's a promise maker means that he's also a visionary. He has something for us that he wants to do for us. He's not waiting on us to determine, what would you like for me to do? Instead, he's making promises, meaning that he has something he wants to do for us. So God is a personal God who makes promises and he's a faithful God who keeps his promises. This whole genealogy is supposed to teach us that God is faithful to do what he's said that he will do. He's faithful to do what he's promised to do. But think about how long it took him, okay? He summarizes it, uh, Matthew does, by saying it's 14 generations and then 14 generations and then 14 generations, which is 42 generations, and he's intentionally leaving some people out. We'll talk about that in a second. That's a long time. The story that he started with, literally millennia went by before he came through on his promise, which means that God can be trusted to keep his promises, but not on our timetable. So first, Jesus was promised. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. But what are the promises that God made? Why were people so hopeful for this coming Messiah? Why were they looking forward to that? What were they expecting God to do? What had he promised to do? Among other things, the promise of the Messiah was the fulfillment of two promises that God made to David and to Abraham. And that's the reason that Matthew calls Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So let's talk about each of them. What is Jesus's connection to David? What had God promised David? And how is calling Jesus the son of David something that is important? Calling Jesus the son of David means that Jesus is the promised king. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, you can go read this sometime. 2 Samuel chapter 7. God makes this promise to David that David will have a seed, a son, whose kingdom will have no end. He says, David, you are going to have this this son who will be a king on your throne and that kingdom will endure forever. That was the promise that he made to David. So what is Jesus's connection to David? Well, 10 times in the gospel of Matthew, 10 times, he uses the phrase son of David. And nine of those 10 times, so 90% of the time, 
it refers to Jesus. The only other time it refers to Joseph in the passage we're going to look at next week. So nine different times, Matthew uses this phrase, son of David, to refer to Jesus. The genealogy, in fact, itself, the primary thing that this genealogy is supposed to highlight is Jesus's connection to David. Now, we get that from a couple places. First, David's mentioned um, three or four different times here. But also, um, there's this uh, Hebrew way of interpreting the scriptures. Um, and Matthew was a Hebrew. He was a, a Jew, an Israelite. And so this, this is called um, gematria. Gematria, okay? I think that's how you say this. But it was a particular um, Hebrew way of interpreting the scriptures where basically what you would do is you would count up the letters in someone's name and then you would assign a number to their name. And so here is David's name in Hebrew. There's no vowels in Hebrew. I think we've got this on the screen. So this is David's name in Hebrew. It's just DVD, which is easy for you to remember, right? Uh, DVD. And so if you add those up, it's 14. D is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The Vav is the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the D is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So if you add those up, the number is 14. Does that make sense? And then he's got three letters in his name. And so three times 14 is 42. And Matthew, when he includes this genealogy, he's not trying to give you every single person that was in the line. Instead, he's trying to organize it all in an artistic, creative way to make a point. He's trying to show you that Jesus is connected to David. Jesus is the son of David. So he organizes Israel's history into three groups of 14. And to a Hebrew thinker who's familiar with that kind of thing, that draws your attention to David. Now, that's kind of a subtle thing that is missed in some of our ways of thinking and some of our ways of interpreting the Bible. But again, Matthew's goal in writing this whole account called the gospel according to Matthew is to help people that he knows, to help Jews come to the same conclusion that he has come to about Jesus. And so he uses this artistic technique to highlight that Jesus is connected to David. So what's the connection to David? Obviously he's in the genealogy and he's got this weird thing. That's cool. Obviously he's from the line of David. Okay. But what else? How else is Jesus connected to David? Well, he's from David's town, the town of Bethlehem, the town of David, it's called. He's also the king amongst his brothers. Do you remember the story of David? Have you ever heard the story before? The prophet Samuel comes to anoint a king for Israel. And he knew that he was supposed to go to this man's house and anoint one of this man's sons, but he didn't know which one. And so he goes and he asks, hey, where are your sons? I'm supposed to anoint somebody king. And they bring in all of the brothers. And they're looking at how strong they are, how smart they are, how tall they are, how much respect they have in the community. They're looking at all of these external things to determine who should be the king. And it turns out that none of them are the king. Instead, it's the teenager who's in the field who was overlooked and not even brought in before them. 
who God is anointing king. And Jesus is going to have the same experience. That he's going to be the king amongst his brothers, but he's going to be one who's overlooked. And what was David's path to the throne? Do you remember the story? He's anointed as king. He's appointed as king. And then he's opposed by the people who are currently in charge. He's opposed, and then he's ultimately exiled from his country. And it's only after the opposition and the exile that he returns to the throne. And Jesus' path is going to be the same path. Jesus is going to be opposed by those who are in authority. Jesus is going to be exiled, not out of the country, but out of the world through his death. And then Jesus is going to be enthroned only after his death through his resurrection. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter one, that he was appointed to be the son of God by the resurrection of the dead. It was his death and his resurrection that ultimately led to his enthronement. So they share a journey to the throne. So Jesus is the unique son of David. He's the promised king whose kingdom will have no end. And so at the very start of the New Testament, the message is clear. If you want to know who Jesus is, if you want to think about who Jesus is and you want to think accurately, then you have to approach Jesus as king. He's not an elected official. He's not up for re-election in 2020. He's not lobbying for votes in the House and the Senate. He's the king. He's in charge. And this means if you want to accurately approach him, you have to notice the crown on his head. You have to submit yourself to him because he is the king. He's to be honored, obeyed, and adored in everything and at all times. And what kind of king is he? So just hearing that there's a king and he's supposed to be in charge, he should still be obeyed, but he, you may not want to, <laughs> right? How is that good news? Okay, there's a new king who's been born. Who I've got to worship and honor and obey and do everything he wants me to do. And I've got to reorient my life around him now because he's the king and his, he's in charge. That's not necessarily good news. That's just tyrants do that. The reason that it's good news that Jesus is the son of David, that he's the promised son of David, that he's the king, is because of the kind of king that he is and the kind of kingdom that he brings. What kind of king is he? Jesus is the promised benevolent king, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the promised benevolent king, the son of Abraham. What does benevolent mean? It means kind, generous, bringing a blessing. That's what benevolent means. And that's the kind of king that Jesus is, a kind, generous, bringing a blessing kind of king. So what is this connection to Abraham? How does being connected to Abraham make Jesus a benevolent king? In order to understand that, you have to understand the story of Abraham. The story of Abraham is really the story of the Old Testament. 
in the beginning of the Bible and in the beginning of the world, God created all things. And he places men and women in this garden. And do you know what he does for them? He blesses them. He says, you're blessed, be fruitful and multiply. And then rather than live out of that blessing, rather than experience the life that God intended them to experience, instead, Adam and Eve rebelled against him. They went the opposite way. They listened to the enemy of the king. And do you know what happened as a result? They fell from this unique blessing and a curse was brought on the world. The ground was cursed. The relationship between people was cursed. And all of us, all humans became corrupted by sin. And then God did not want to leave the world in that state. So do you know what he did? He began a series of events to redeem all of that. Do you know what it means to redeem something? It means to make it good again, to buy it back from the, the poor state that it's in and restore it to its former glory. And so God who created the world for a blessing cursed it, but he didn't leave it there. Instead, he wanted to redeem it. And the way that he chose to redeem the world was by choosing a man named Abraham. And do you know what he promised Abraham? He said, I am going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the way that God is going to work, beginning in Genesis chapter 12, all the way through up through Jesus, the way that God is going to work to redeem the world is through what biblical theologians call election. Election is God chooses one to work on behalf of the many. He chooses one to work on behalf of the many. So how is God going to bless the whole world? How is God going to redeem the whole world? He's going to choose Abraham. And Abraham and his family are going to be this line, this seed that bless the world. And this is why circumcision was such a big deal in the Old Testament. This is why circumcision is still such a big deal to those who practice the Jewish faith. Because circumcision is a sign of God's covenant to bless. It's a, it's a sign of God's covenant to bless through Abraham. This is the reason that um, when you read the book of Acts, people are very concerned about circumcision and how it relates to this new thing that happens in the church. Circumcision is a sign of the blessing. So from the beginning, God's plan has been to redeem the whole world, and he intended to do it through Abraham. And this is what makes Jesus's genealogy so fascinating, is that by connecting Jesus to Abraham, what Matthew is alluding to is that Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the promised seed, the promised son that God made to Abraham. And this is the seed. This is the son of Abraham who will bring God's blessing to all the earth.
And in the genealogy itself, we get a hint at that. And here's the hint. The hint is the, occlu- the inclusion of Jesus's mothers. That's the hint. See, typically in the ancient world, if you were creating this resume, this genealogy, you wouldn't include women. And the reason is because it didn't do anything for your case. To be connected to a woman, you needed to be connected to a powerful man. It was a patriarchal society. But in Jesus's genealogy, there are five women mentioned, four of them from the Old Testament. And the inclusion of those women teach us that God is intending to bless all the families of the earth, all people through Jesus. Here's how. First, the inclusion of these women means that men and women are included in the blessing. God created men and women with differences, yes, but he created them for the same purpose, and that is to be blessed and to bring honor to him, to be blessed and be a blessing. Because of sin, we have distorted that. That distortion takes place in all kinds of ways where there's conflict between men and women and the way that we view men and women. But God has come in his son, Jesus, to redeem that. So that in Jesus, there is no male and female. All are co-heirs with Christ. All have equal access to the Father through Jesus. Men and women, sons and daughters. In fact, the New Testament is so clear on this that women are often just referred to as sons. Paul doesn't say sons and daughters. He just says sons. Do you know why? Because in their culture, a son had far more power and privilege than a daughter. But Paul can refer to men and women as sons because all have the same status before God. So all are included in this blessing. That means men and women are included. Also, this genealogy teaches us that sinners and saints are included in this blessing. Sinners and saints. What's interesting about the women that Matthew includes is how horrible some of their stories are. And yet he intentionally includes them. He could have left them out. There was no reason that he had to include the mom. But why did he do that? Because he wanted us to know that sinners and saints are included. He mentions Tamar in verse 3. He says, And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Do you know that story? You should go read this. Genesis 38. Genesis 38. It's a crazy story. It's horrible. Basically, Jacob doesn't keep his promise to Tamar. Tamar is his daughter-in-law. In order for her to get back at him, she pretends to be a prostitute and sleeps with her father-in-law so that she can have these kids. They turn out to be twins, Perez and Zara. Why is he intentionally calling our attention to that story? Because even a story like that can be redeemed by this Savior, Jesus. He also points out Rahab in verse 5. Rahab was a prostitute. He also, this is 
the most surprising of all in verse 6. He refers to Jesus' mother Bathsheba, but he doesn't even call her Bathsheba. And the reason is not to be disrespectful to her. The reason is to highlight this act of sin that David committed. Instead, she's called the wife of Uriah. Do you know why she's called that? Because when David was king, even though he was the greatest king that Israel had known and would know, he was still a moral failure. And one day he was on his roof, as kings would typically be. He happened to get a glimpse of this woman. He wanted to sleep with her, and so he eventually arranged for her husband to be killed so that he could marry her. And that is highlighted in this genealogy. Why? Because Jesus is a benevolent king. He brings his blessing to all. His redemption goes to all, even to sinners like that. And this genealogy highlights that Jews and Gentiles are included in the blessing. From the very beginning in Genesis chapter 12, God's plan has not just been for the nation of Israel to be blessed through Abraham, but instead Abraham was chosen for the sake of many. The nation was chosen for the sake of many. The plan has always been for Jews and Gentiles to be blessed. And they were blessed along the way. They were included along the way. Rahab is included in verse 5. We just looked at her. She was a Gentile. Ruth is also included in verse 5. That is a beautiful story. You should go read sometime, the book of Ruth. But Ruth was a Gentile who was included and became the grandmother of David, the king. But also, the wife of Uriah. Do you know what Uriah was, what nationality, what race? He was a Hittite. So it's very likely that his wife was also a Hittite, which means that even Bathsheba was a Gentile. And Jewish tradition, and there's no way to prove this, but Jewish tradition holds that Tamar was also a Gentile, which means all four of these women who are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus were Gentiles. Jesus came for all people. And here's what that means for you. Here's why this is such good news. This means that you can be included too. Regardless of who you are, where you're from, what you've done. That was a Backstreet Boys quote. But regardless of all of that, you can be included too. You can be blessed as well by this King Jesus. The only way for your name to be remembered is to be connected to this family. See, God made this promise to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, this is on the screen. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's blessing or cursing on people in the Old Testament was, was based on their relationship to God through Abraham. God's blessing or cursing today is based on a person's relationship to God, not through Abraham, but through Jesus. And here we are, in some cases, 4,000 years later, mentioning the names of people 
who would otherwise be forgotten. Because God made a promise that those connected to this family would be blessed. Do you want to be remembered? Do you want to have a name that's great? It's not going to be through you building your own kingdom. It's not going to be through you raising up the greatest kids ever. It's not going to be through you becoming known as the most hospitable or the most generous or the most gracious. The only way for you to have a name that will be honored and remembered forever is for you to be connected to God through Jesus. Because that's how God's blessing comes. And just as the Israelites' connection to God was through Abraham, and just as that connection had a sign called circumcision attached to it, Jesus has also given us a sign of his promise and his covenant to us. Do you know what that symbol, that sign is? Luke chapter 22, verse 19 and 20. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus has given us a sign of his promise to us as well. It's called the Lord's Supper, and we're going to take it together in just a minute. But to close, I want to share the most interesting, fascinating, make-me-worship kind of thing that I discovered thinking and praying about this passage. Do you know why the covenant, that the sign of this covenant is in blood? Why blood? Because Jesus is the true son of Abraham and the true son of David. See, if you were to ask a Jew today, who's the son of Abraham? They would say Isaac. And he would be held in great esteem. And the story that they would tell you about Isaac is about a time when his dad, Abraham, was commanded by God to take him up on top of Mount Moriah and have him sacrificed there. And Jewish tradition holds that that Isaac went willingly with his dad. And when he asked his dad, where is the animal for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the offering. And that's a story that has huge significance to the nation of Israel. And if you ask a Jew today, who is the son of David? Do you know what they would say? They would say Solomon. And do you know what Solomon did? Solomon was a wise king who built a temple for the Lord. A temple is the place where God and man meet. That's all that a temple is. It's the space where God and man can be together. And the way that you would enter this temple is by blood. And so better than Isaac, Jesus is the sacrifice whose blood will save us from our sins. And better than Solomon, Jesus is the wise king who builds a meeting place, a temple between God and man. 
And he himself is the temple. He is the place. And through his blood, he is the place where all of the storyline of the Old Testament comes together and where all people can come and meet with God. And that's the reason that the the sign that he gives us to remember that, to remember his promise, is the sign of blood. So if you are here this morning and you would not call yourself a Christian, you don't know Jesus, you need to know that unless you become connected to God, through Jesus. Your name will not be remembered. You will not experience this blessing. But you are invited to come and experience all of the blessings, not because of who you are, not because of who your family is, not because of how well you've cleaned yourself up, or not because of anything that you would accomplish. But you are invited to come and have your name be remembered for all time simply by trusting in Jesus. Trusting that he is the promised benevolent king who goes to a cross and dies so that you can be reconciled to God. So this morning, come believe that. Come receive Jesus this morning. And if you are here and you are a Christian, you believe that, then you're invited to come and have your name be remembered. Don't stress over the ways in which you can build your life on yourself. Instead, humbly remember that Jesus is the King and it's only through Him that you will be remembered. Rest all of your hope, all of your security, all of your significance in him and what he has accomplished in your place. Rest from the pressure to live up and, and build this, this thing for yourself. Rest from that pressure. Rest in Jesus and what he's done. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being a wise, wise God who has, who has weaved this whole story together in Jesus. God, that story is able to make us wise for salvation, you say. So God, would you give us that wisdom now? If there are people here who don't know you, would you introduce yourself? God, if there are people here this morning who are hurting, who are burdened by things, God, would you lift their eyes? Would you lift their eyes and help them see this wise, benevolent king? Would you help them remember that their future is his future? That the blessing that he has earned can be theirs by faith. So would you help them trust in Jesus this morning? God, would you help us as a church always be in such humble awe and wonder at this Savior. It is never old news what he's done for us. It is always good news. And would you help us be a church that celebrates 
the good news. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.